This morning we're going to be in uh, a little bit different. Um, so we've just finished the Gospel of John. We've taken a whole decade to get through the Gospel of John. And uh, so now we're, we're finally finished with that. And we're going to be starting a new book, the book of Acts, the first Sunday of February. Um, and so for the next couple Sundays, as, as Rory referred to, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. This morning we're going to be looking at the Old Testament. And we'll be in the sixth book of the Old Testament in the book of Joshua. So if you would, open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. Let's go ahead and stand. When you get there, go ahead and stand with me. We'll read the scriptures together. We'll pray, ask the Lord's blessing upon our time together, and then we'll get into the meat of the word. Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. The title of this morning's message is The Ultimate Resolution. The Ultimate Resolution. Beginning in verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Please be seated. Father, this morning we come before you, and Lord, first and foremost, we're so thankful for your word. Truly, it is the light into our path, the lamp into our feet. Lord, truly, it is the, 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 the blueprint of our lives. We thank you, Lord God, for it, and we ask, Lord, that you would bless your word to our hearts today. We thank you, as it says in Isaiah, that you honor your word above even your own name. And so today, Lord, we pray that through the work of the Holy Spirit, you would press your word deeply into our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be, um, to be prepared and responsive this morning. And we ask, Lord God, that your purposes and your will would be accomplished in us. Lord, we just want to make ourselves available to you today. We want to submit ourselves to you. We want to make ourselves wide open and say, Lord, here we are. Use us, speak to us, direct us, and lead us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome to the third Sunday service in 2022. It's crazy to think that, especially after the last couple of years. Um, the last two years have been kind of crazy in our, in our country, and we're hoping that this year things kind of get back to normal, God willing. Amen? Amen. I was thinking just this week how fortunate my family and I have been that we've been part of the community here at Calvary Chapel Primeville now for just over three months. And in that period of time, we've had the privilege to get to know many of you fairly well, and yet there's others we're still hoping and desiring to get to know in this coming year. And so uh, we are super excited to see what the Lord has in store in 2022, excited to see what he has for us individually, but also excited to see what he has for us corporately as a body, as we grow together, sharing our lives and our faith with one another. One of the ways that we can do that, is, as Rory mentioned a little while ago, is just in community groups and home groups. Um, we've had the opportunity, my wife and I, to go to almost every one of our home groups. We have 10 of them in the church. We've gone to almost every single one thus far. And it's been an incredible opportunity to get to meet people, um, to get to know them a little bit, to share fellowship with them and get in the word together with them and break bread with them. And we've been so blessed by the character and love that you have for one another and for the body of Christ, and the community here in Prineville. And so we wanted to say just 
from, from our hearts. Thank you for accepting us and bringing us in and loving on us. And, and we're just so excited to see what God has for us this year. All of that said, I'm going to guess that we have at least two things in common. Whether I've met you, whether we've spent time together or not, we have at least two things in common. Number one, we've made a New Year's resolution at least one time in our lives, and we've undoubtedly done what? Broken it, right? And I see smiles, people going, I've broken it. <laughs> we've broken it, right? The number of Americans who make New Year's resolutions typically hovers around 40% or so, and that figure has stayed the same throughout several decades, according to the Marist polling firm. And each year, tens of millions of Americans plan to change something about their lives, to change something about their behavior. And research suggests that most of them fail. In fact, 60% of New Year's resolutions fail. Researchers at the University of Scranton have conducted the most rigorous study on New Year's resolutions, and they have found that 77% of resolvers um, studied made it through the first week. That means that 23% failed in the first seven days. 55% stuck to their goals after the first month. That means that 45% failed after the first 30 days of their resolution. By the time we get to June, six months into the new year, only 40% of those who made a New Year's resolution have stuck to their goal. So given that so many of us do make New Year's resolutions each year, Researchers have learned a thing or two about what they can do or what people can do to help them succeed. And they've identified three things that separate the 40% of people who keep their New Year's resolutions from the 60% who don't. They found three things. Number one, make your goal attainable, right? Make it within arm's reach, right? Don't shoot for, for the moon. Make it within arm's reach. Number two, know that you'll mess up. It's inevitable and it's okay. Right? If you fall off the horse, what are you supposed to do? Get right back on. Right? The, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 24, 16, for a righteous man may fail seven times, and then what? But he rises again. So number one, make it attainable. Number two, understand that you're probably going to fall off the horse. Get right back on. And number three, be very motivated and committed. And they give us a couple tips on how we can do that. They tell us to map out what is going to be different about your life. Literally, write it out. Write out your goals, and then write out a strategy to help things be different, to help you take different steps, have a different mindset, so that you can achieve the goals that you've established for yourself. G.K. Chesterton, a 20th century English writer, theologian, philosopher, and apologist, he was known as the Prince of Paradox, said this, the object of a new year is not that we should have a new year, it is that we should have a new soul. Unless a particular man made New Year's resolutions, he would make no resolutions. Unless a man starts afresh about things, he will certainly do nothing effective. I like what he says, that the goal of a new year is not the new year. It's to have a new soul. It's to realign ourselves with God. That said, all of us, I'm sure, desire to do better this year than we have in the past. And for most of us, there are things that we would like to change about ourselves. And hopefully as we sit here on the other side of the Christmas holidays and on the the threshold of this new year, that we've taken the time, we've actually sat down and thought through, taken the time to reflect on the past year and all the blessings and all the challenges that it contained and all the times that we've seen the faithfulness of God. 
My kids and I have shared this with you before. Every single night we get together for prayer. And even my daughter who's in Wilsonville, and we have FaceTime with her every single night, almost every single night. Um, and we, we try to, to, to gather together, to pray together. But one thing we always do is we ask, what's your win for the day? And what we mean by that is, how have you seen the faithfulness of God today? It could be anything from, I was able to sleep in this morning, right? For my oldest daughter, she likes to sleep in. So being able to sleep in, that's her win. Or being able to go to bed early, that's her win. You know, it could be you were able to, you know, finish your homework on time. Something like just seeing the faithfulness. It could be getting a, a parking space in front, of, in front of Rite Aid. Something small, something minuscule, but just seeing the faithfulness, a door that's open, a conversation that was had, favor that was given by your neighbor. It could be anything like that. We have a friend of ours who's a missionary, and she was a missionary in Brazil. Now they live in China. But we would go and visit them. And I remember one day we were heading out for the day, and she stopped. She put her child in the, in, uh, uh, in the stroller, and then she began to pray. And she literally just said out loud, Lord, help me find socks today. Something simple. And then throughout our day, guess what? We came across this table, and there were socks, and she bought these socks, and she paid for them. And she stopped and said, Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Just little things like that. And I want to encourage us here today that we would be better at thankfulness. That we would be better at recognizing the faithfulness of God. Not just in the big things, the things that we've been praying for, but even in the small little things like socks. Just little blessings that happen in our lives. Even a good cup of coffee. My kids always make fun of me because one time I was sitting having dinner and I drank a cup of water and I said, Oh, that's good water. Thank you. And they just laughed about water. But I was seriously thankful for water. But being, giving praise to God for his provision, his protection in our lives. Amen? And so as we look into this new year with all of its promise and potential, I hope that for all concerned that God is the top of our list. To know him more clearly, to love him more dearly, to follow him more nearly than we did in the past. That we would renew our devotion to him and that we would renew our soul, as G.K. Chesterton said. But what does that mean, to renew your soul? It speaks of a sincerity and intentionality concerning things spiritual, concerning things eternal, concerning things heavenly. It speaks of being mindful of God. Not just as we would think in our, our American culture, being mindful, being considerate, or being sensitive to something. But no, having your mind full of the thoughts of God. Being, thinking about him throughout the day. Recognizing his presence in your life. Recognizing the nudge of the Holy Spirit and communicating with the Lord throughout the day. Little things like even asking for socks. Lord, help me today. Direct me today. This morning, a brother wrote in. He's talking about a struggle that he is having just with time and the, 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 the intense uh, season that he is in. And I just wrote him. This morning, I was reading through Charles Spurgeon devotion, and it was all about how the Lord will give you everything that you need. He's already given you everything you need in a sense. He saved your soul. He's forgiven you. He's adopted you. But then it says, how much more will I give you the smaller things than these big things? Of course I will give you these small things. If you need strength, I will give you strength. If you need courage, I will give you courage. If you need help on your finances, I will give you help on your finances. If you need help with your marriage, I will help you on these things. If you need help finding socks, guess what? I'll help you find socks. 
And so here we see this idea of having a new soul, in other words, being mindful of God. A.W. Tozer said that, that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so I want to encourage you guys this morning and the threshold of this new year to purposely be mindful of God, his presence, his work in your life, in the lives of people around you. And that's what Joshua is doing here in chapter 24. He's calling the people of God to renew their commitment to God, to be serious and intentional concerning their relationship to him. In chapter 23, verse 2, we hear that Joshua is old and advanced in years. He has faithfully served the people of God as their general and as their spiritual leader. And he's about to go the way of the earth, as it says in chapter 23, verse 14. He's about to die. But before he does, he calls the people together to exhort them to be faithful to God, the God of Israel, to recommit themselves to serve and worship him. Look what it says in verse 1. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and he called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, for their officers, and they presented themselves before the Lord. I like that. They presented themselves before the Lord. Do you know that's what we do here every Sunday? Every Sunday when we come and we, and we fill these seats, every Sunday when we inhabit the walls of this building, that we come here for the purpose of seeking the Lord, to worship him, to hear the word of God, to allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in our lives, we are literally presenting ourselves before the Lord. We're saying, God, here we are. We're here to worship you. Lord, here we are. Have your way in us. Lord, have free reign in our lives. Amen? We're presenting ourselves before the Lord. And I'm encouraging you today, if, if you're a person that takes notes in your Bible, underlines, highlights, asterisks, checkmark, arrow, whatever you do, highlight that phrase, they presented themselves before God. We should also be doing that each and every day. Presenting ourselves before the Lord. Here I am. This is my day. This is what I have before me. This is the agenda that's before me today. But Lord, you're God. Direct me and lead me. I present myself before you today. So Joshua gathers the people together in the city of Shechem. And I'm going to put up a map here real quick so you guys can see where Shechem is. Shechem is about 40 miles north of Jerusalem, and it's in between two mountains, Mount Ebal in the north and then Mount Gerizim in the south. And it's about 10 miles north of Shiloh. You see Shiloh towards the end in the middle of that picture, says Shiloh. Shiloh is important because what's in Shiloh at this time in, in the Old Testament? What's there? Anybody know? The Ark of the Covenant, right? The tabernacle of God. God is residing in Shiloh, right, in that place. And you would think that if you're going to call a national meeting, you'd probably hold it in the national place of worship where God is, as he is hovering in the mercy seat between the two cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. You would think that you'd have a national meeting in the place of national worship. But no, Joshua summons the people to a place, a city called Shechem. He chooses Shechem and he chooses it for a reason. The location of this meeting is very strategic and it's very intentional. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 6, it says that Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh or the oak tree of Moreh. 
And why is this significant? It's significant because it was here in Shechem that God first appeared to Abraham when he entered into the promised land. And it's here in Shechem that God first speaks to Abraham and covenants with him that he, and he tells him, to your offspring I will give this land. All this land will be yours. And then Abraham built his very first altar to the Lord in the promised land here in this city in Shechem. So we see the first appearance of God, the first altar. We see the first promise all here in this city, 500 years between jo- before Joshua chapter 24. It's also in Shechem that we read in Genesis chapter 33 that Jacob journeys from Mesopotamia and he builds an altar here in Shechem, possibly rebuilding the very same altar that his grandfather had built previously. And this is significant not just because it was uh, the first time that God appeared in the, in the promised land, not just because it was the first altar that was built in the promised land, or not even because it was the first uh, time that God spoke in the promised land. It's significant because this was the first altar that Jacob had ever built, ever, in his life. And he chooses to build it in Shechem. It's significant because it signifies Jacob's personal commitment to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And he names this altar El Elohi Israel, or God, the God of Israel. Moreover, in Genesis 35, Jacob, in response to God's faithfulness to he and his family, he calls his family together to purify themselves and to relinquish or to surrender all of their idols and their false gods, and he takes them, and guess what he does? He buries these idols and these false gods under this tree there in Shechem. Interesting side note, in the New Testament, this city is called Suhar, and it's here next to Jacob's well that Jesus ministers to a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. So it's a very significant place. 500 years after Abraham, 250 years after Jacob, Joshua is going to address the people of God for the first time. And something amazing happens. Something incredible, very interesting happens. For the first time we hear Joshua do something, say something that we have never heard him say before. Look at verse 2. It says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Never happened before. He's never spoke those words before. Here he says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Joshua takes on himself the mantle of the prophet, and God begins to speak through him to the people of Israel. God is going to rehearse his faithfulness to the people. He's going to remind them of all that he's done. He's going to speak to them about all the wonderful things that he's done on their behalf, how he's blessed them, how he's delivered them, how he's provided for them and protected them, how he's led them and cared for them all of these years, being faithful to the covenant that he made with Abraham 500 years before. This is huge stuff. This is huge stuff. Again, verse 1, Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. 
And we see this remarkable exhortation that takes place in the following verses. God begins to speak. And I don't know what was in Joshua's mind when he called this meeting. I'm not sure what was really on his heart, what he was thinking when he called all these people to himself. But as soon as he stands up, and as soon as he says these words, thus says the Lord, boom! The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord comes over Joshua And he begins to speak to the people. And he begins to say in verses 2 and 3, I called you. I called Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldees. The reason that you are in this place today is because I called you to myself. I'm the one who gave Isaac. And I gave Isaac Jacob. Verse 4 says, And I'm the one who led your ancestors down into Egypt to grow into a mighty nation for 400 years. Verse 5 says, I'm the one who called Moses and sent him to you when you were crying out in your distress. And I'm the one who plagued Egypt. And I'm the one who delivered you and brought you out. Verse 7 says, "And, And you cried unto me at the Red Sea. And I'm the one who led you through the Red Sea. And I destroyed the Egyptians and their army. And I stayed with you a long time in the wilderness. For 40 years I was with you every step of the way. I led you, verses 8 through 10, to the two kings of the Amorites, and I gave you victory, and I delivered you, and I wouldn't listen to Balaam. I refused to listen to his curses. Instead, I blessed you. Verse 12, and I'm the one who sent hornets before you and brought you into the land of Canaan. And finally, in verse 13, I'm the one who has given you this land that you don't deserve. I have given you cities that you did not build and you're living in. I have given you olive orchards and vineyards that you did not plant, and you're enjoying the fruit of them. I've done all of this for you. John Wolverd said this, the former president of Dallas Theological Seminary, any greatness Israel achieved was not by her own effort, but through God's grace and enablement. From first to last, Israel's conquests, deliverances, and prosperity were because of God's good mercies and were not of their own making. The same can be said of us. Any blessings that we have had in our life, any victories, any success we've had in our life, it's not because we were the smartest person. It's not because we made the right call. It's not because we just had the X factor. It's simply by God's good mercy. It's by God's grace. In this last year, any conquest, any deliverances, any prosperity that you experienced over this last year in the midst of all that's gone on, is not because you're the smartest apple in the barrel. It's simply because of God's good mercies. And the same can be said of us. Being on this threshold of a new year, it's a great opportunity for us to slow down, to pause, and to consider the wondrous works of God in our lives over this past year. Verse 14 Joshua says, now therefore, after he's just rehearsed all the faithfulness of God in their lives, what he has done for them, how he's carried them, protected, provided, cared for them over these last, you know, years, 400, 500 years, he says, now therefore, or more literally, because I've done all this, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, or as the ESV says, in sincerity and faithfulness. It reminds me of Paul in Romans chapter 12 when he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren. If you know the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul puts the wisdom and majesty, the grace, the sovereignty of God on display. He just reveals it. 
He says, listen, all of us, every single one of us, are guilty before God. There is none who is innocent. Every single one of us deserve the wrath of God, Jew, Gentile alike. We're all guilty before God, and we deserve the full weight of his wrath. But God, he says, but God, and he rehearses the majesty, the glory of God. He reminds us of the extravagant mercy of God. He reminds us that we are saved by grace, called, justified, forgiven, redeemed, glorified, adopted in the person and finished work of who? Jesus Christ alone. And we don't deserve any of it. We don't deserve any of it. And then he says this in Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto the Lord, which is your reasonable service, or literally your spiritual act of worship. It's almost in that same spirit. Joshua now is speaking to the people, and the Holy Spirit saying through him almost the same thing. Now therefore, because I've done all of these things, I have controlled your very history. I have taken you. I have made you. I have brought you to myself. And all that I require of you is that you obey my law. And that you be a people that are moral. That you be a people that raise your children right. That you be a people who are committed to your marriage partner. That you don't steal, that you don't murder, and that you don't worship other gods. You know, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says this. When has, there ever, when has it ever happened to a people before that the Lord, the living God, has called them and made them his people, given them laws and statutes to live by, and given them guidelines and called them to be more than the heathen of the world and to stand up and live with integrity and with honesty and to reflect the character of their creator who called them and made them? When has this ever happened in history? Well, it happened to you, and it's happened to me. And so in verse 14, Joshua says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. What does it mean, sincerity and truth, sincerity and faithfulness? What does that mean? What's he asking us to do? It means simply don't be phony. It means to be real. It means to be honest. It means to have integrity of heart toward God. In fact, the Bible challenges us in Matthew 15, verse 8, challenges those who would honor the Lord with their lips and then with their heart, they're far from him. Who say, I'm a Christian, and yet don't live like it. Who say that they're a Christian, and yet live like the rest of the world, and yet show up on Sundays. Or when someone asks them, are you a believer? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. In fact, in our culture today, there was a, there was a recent poll that asked, are you a born-again Christian? Over 70% of Americans said they're born-again Christians. 70%. Do you guys believe that statistic? No way. No way. And so the Bible challenges those who say, who honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And that's a great challenge for me. I'll just be honest. I'll just be real. It's a challenge for me. I always have to examine my own heart. I've been a Christian now for 30 years. I've been teaching the Bible for 27, 28 years. And I always have to... That, that verse challenges me because it's so easy for me to just go through the motions. It's so easy for me just to fall into a Christian funk, to a rut, because it's so familiar to me. People always think that, that pastors, all they do all day is, is read the Bible and pray. 
I remember one time I was flying back from Israel, from New York to, to California, and I was sitting next to this guy who was a glassblower in Seattle, and I was asking what he did. I was really interested. Like, glassblowing is kind of cool, right? It's pretty cool how they do it. I was really interested, and I was asking a bunch of questions. He goes, that's enough of it. I mean, what do you do? I'm a pastor. And he goes, what do you do the other six days of the week? <laughs> the impression is that's all we do is teach on Sunday, and then we have the rest of the week to just read and pray. But listen, your struggle to find time in, in the Bible to read and pray is the same struggle I have. Because just like you, you have, you know, things that are constantly asking for your time. Kids and resources and homes and family issues and bills to pay. and all. We have the same thing. It's not like we're completely exempt from those things. We have the same stuff. Plus, we have not only that, we have all of your stuff, Right? We're called to, to shepherd and care for you. And so when you have issues, they become our issues as well. And so we fight to find that time. And it's so easy for me personally to just get in a rut, to just kind of go through the motions because it's so comfortable, it's so familiar to me. I find my heart easily wandering from the Lord. God challenges us that we would serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. And that we would, verse 14, put away the gods that your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Verse 15 says, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Notice it doesn't say if you will serve, but whom you will serve. Bob Dylan once said, and I believe prophetically almost in the song he wrote, You've got to serve somebody. It might be the devil. It might be the Lord. But you've got to serve somebody. Why? Because, guys, we were made to worship. We were made to serve. It's not a question of will you serve. It's not a question of will you worship. You will serve. You will be master. But the question is by whom? It might be sex or money. It might could be drugs or ambition or power or success or IQ or relationships. Hopefully it will be the Lord. And if it's true that you're going to be mastered by someone, why not choose the one who will master you? If you're going to be mastered, why not be mastered by the one who called you, who delivered you, who forgave you, who redeemed you, who adopted you, who gave you victory, who created you and made you his son and his daughter? Why would you not serve the one who has only benefited you? Guys, I mean, if we, if we watch the news, if we read what's going on in the world, if we just look around our community, we see the marks of, of cruel masters all around us. We see the devastation of drugs and alcohol and other things like money and materialism, narcissism, pornography, and the like. These are cruel masters, and what do they do? They destroy They destroy lives. They destroy livelihoods, careers, families, marriages, children. Therefore, the Holy Spirit speaks to us from the pages of scriptures this morning and says, therefore, serve the Lord, again, with sincerity and truth. Because the truth is there are other gods in this world, and people will serve them, but not you. Not you. Choose you for yourself this day, whom you will serve. You see, when God created humanity, he created us with this remarkable capacity for choice. It's part of being image makers. 
The cow in the pasture, it doesn't choose that field. The salmon running upstream to spawn, it doesn't choose that. The migratory movements and patterns of animals, they don't have free choice. The remarkable capacity of choice was given to mankind only, not to the beasts of the field, not to the the birds of the air, but only to those who are made in his image and his likeness. Therefore, choose this day whom you will serve. The word choose is in the imperative tense, meaning you should have chosen in the past, you should be choosing currently, and you should choose tomorrow. The question is, whom will you serve? Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And that could literally easily be saying this, who will you serve? Will you serve the Lord or will you serve your old habits? Will you serve the Lord or will you serve your old haunts? Will you serve the Lord in the new creation, the new character that he's given you? Or will you go back to the old nature? the old ways of life? Will you allow society and culture to shape how you think and how you live and the choices that you make? Or will you allow the Lord to shape how you think and the decisions and choices that you make? But as for me and my house, Joshua says, we will serve the Lord. This is the ultimate resolution. The ultimate resolution to serve To serve God means to fear him. It means to obey him. It means to worship him alone. It means to resolve to love him above everything else, to fix your heart on him, to obey him, not because we feel it's our duty to do so, but because we want to. Not because of all that he's done for us, but simply because of who he is. Jonathan Edwards an 18th century preacher known as one of the greatest figures in American church history, when he was a teenager, sat down and he wrote 70 resolutions or 70 principles that he believed would help him cultivate uh, uh, his growth in grace. And he continued to read them all throughout his life. Probably some of his greatest writings were his resolutions. He was a prolific writer, but probably some of his greatest were these. And I'm going to sum up the first two. Number one is this. His first resolution is, I will live for God. And number two was, even if no one else does, I still will. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua made it clear that the people of God had to make a resolute decision. The people of God had to make a resolute decision to serve the Lord. Even if no one else would, they would make that choice. Because there was no neutrality. There's no gray area here. You either choose the Lord or you don't choose the Lord. Why? Because there's so much at stake. There's too much at stake. How many of you guys are fathers here this morning? Go ahead and raise your hand up nice and high so everyone can see. Go ahead. Come on, Dave. Rest nice and high. There it is. Right? We're all fathers here, right? That means we have a lot at stake, doesn't it? We have a lot at stake. Concerning our kids, there's no room to, to make mistakes. There's no room. There's a ton at stake. 
Every father here needs to stand up and be counted. Every father here needs to stand up in their home because every single day, America, our culture, our our nation will offer different gods to your children. When they go to school, they're told that they can have an abortion without consent. They're handed condoms at a young age and told that sexual exploration is a good thing. It's natural, and they encourage it. They're told that it's good and healthy to experiment with their sexual identity, that boys can be girls and girls can be boys, and that same-sex relationships are proper and appropriate. Every single day, other gods will be placed before your kids. And fathers, you need to stand up, and I need to stand up and be counted and say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen? If you're a single mom, if you're a single dad, the same is true for you. Listen, if I say, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord, then I need to understand, I need to understand, it starts right here. It starts with me. It starts with me. I lead the way. When I would lead our our men's fellowship, I used to always tell these guys, if I'm If I'm failing to lead, then I'm leading in failure. If I'm failing to lead, then I'm leading in failure. What that means is this. Where I am will set the stage for where my kids will be. I'm like a thermostat in my home. Not a thermometer that that checks the temperature. I set the temperature. That's what God has called me to do. What am I doing? Who am I privately And who am I following? If I watch questionable stuff on TV, if I look at questionable things on the internet, on my phone, I cannot expect my kids not to do the same thing. Oh, but you might protest. Oh, but my kids will never see it. They don't know. Listen, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 6 that what is done in secret will be revealed openly. The Bible also tells us in the Old Testament that your sins will find you out. How many of us can testify to that reality? (laughs) Our sins find us out. Therefore, if you want your sons and your daughters to be Bible lovers, guess what? You need to love the Bible yourself. You need to develop a deep devotional life personally. You need to get up in the morning and read and allow your kids to see you reading the Bible. And Maybe you get up early and you're out the door before your kids even get up. Well, then leave your Bible on the table. Leave it on the counter. Leave it open. Allow them to know, I just got done reading Joshua chapter 24, and I marked it up, and these are my notes in there. And they've seen the next day, guess what's Joshua chapter, actually it's Judges. Judges chapter 1, right? Judges chapter 1. Or maybe you're reading through the Psalms or the Proverbs, but every day they're seeing that you're making progress, and they see that their dad, that their mom, that they're Bible-loving people, and they're in the Word. Amen? Lay it out there. Let them see it. Let them see it. There was a pastor here in Oregon years ago that fell in sin, and his son was part of our Bible college. And I remember talking to him, and I said, hey, um, what did you learn from your dad's devotional life? And he literally looked at me and said, I never saw it. Never saw it. I go, what do you mean? Your dad was a pastor. He goes, I never saw him reading. I never saw him praying. I just saw him preaching. And his dad fell in sin. And guess what this young man ended up doing? Walking away from the Lord. Because dad had not established a foundation of loving the word of God. And so his son would follow his, his steps. If you want your kids to be pure, 
then live in purity in your secret life because what you do in secret inevitably impact, will impact your children and your grandchildren for the rest of their lives. I think of David when he was just a teenager. He killed Goliath. We all know that story of David and Goliath, right? He killed Goliath. Then we see him at the end of his life at his deathbed. And he's surrounded by a group of men who are known as David's mighty men. And all of these guys were giant killers as well. And yet none of them ever saw David kill Goliath. Not a single one of them did. But they saw David's character. They saw his devotion to God. They saw that he feared God. They saw him fearlessly waging war against evil. And what they saw, what they witnessed, was transferred to their own lives. And they became giant killers as well. In contrast, when we read about a list of men that surrounded Saul, we don't read about giant killers. Because Saul was afraid to do battle against Goliath. And he never killed a giant himself. And the point is this, and don't miss this. Dad, your kids, your grandkids will take on aspects not of what they hear you say, but of what they see in your life. What they see in you. They won't take on aspects of who who you say you are, but who they see you are. Case in point, a man shared his testimony saying that he was a born-again Christian. Every once in a while, he enjoyed a drink now and then. And one Thanksgiving, the snow was falling, and after the the family feast was over, he wanted something to drink, so he goes to the cabinet, it's empty, and he thinks, well, I'll just slip out, the liquor store is only three blocks away, I'll just put on my hat, put on my coat, put on my boots, and I'll just head down there. And halfway down the road, as he's traipsing through the snow, he hears something behind him. He turns around, and he sees his four-year-old son with his little boots on, his little hat, his little coat. And he turns around, and he says, hey, buddy, what are you doing? And his son looks at him and says, daddy, I'm just walking in your footsteps. And all of a sudden, it hits him. Whoa. Whoa. He wants to follow my footsteps, and I'm going to the liquor store. And so he grabbed his son by the hand, turned around, and went home immediately and never drank again. The point has nothing to do with alcohol. Don't misunderstand that. The point has everything to do with this question. Where are you leading your kids? Where are you leading them? Where are you leading your sons and daughters? Where are you leading your grandkids? What are they seeing? For better or for worse, they're following in your footsteps. And Joshua, understanding that, said this, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So how do the people respond, right? What happens next? Well, in verses 16 through 18, the people respond right away because they've been so convicted as the Lord has spoken through Joshua. In verse 16, it says, Far be it from us, or literally God forbid, that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. The Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. And notice what it says at the end of verse 18. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Sounds incredible, right? Not good. Listen to what happens in verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord. What? They just said, no, we get it. 
We're on board. Yep, we understand what God has done for us. Yep, we've been saved. Jesus died on the cross for us, and he died for our sins. Now we're washed in the blood of Jesus. Yep, we totally get it. We're on board. No, you don't understand, he says. You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Verse 20, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. Joshua doesn't trust their profession. He doesn't trust the profession of faith. He's skeptical. He hears their promise to serve the Lord, but there's something in the way that they said it. Maybe he knows them all too well. And so he does not take the profession of faith at face value. After all, if you remember, he was with the group of people who came over across the Red Sea. He was with them as they stood at the, at the base of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, verse 8, when God called them to be faithful to him. And they said, the people said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And then just a few weeks later, they're taking off their golden earrings and their golden nose rings and their bracelets and they're throwing them in the fire and out comes what? A golden calf. A golden calf. Just a few weeks after they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. Very similar to what they said. We also will serve the Lord for he is our God. The point is this. We all understand how easy it is for us to commit to something. It's super easy to say, yes, I'm in. That's the easy part. The hard part is following through, isn't it? The hard part, even when it's, when it's difficult, it's really difficult for us. And then all of a sudden, we have to follow through with the things that we said. Alan Redpath said this, the best test of sincerity is not always the open hostility of foes, for this often braces up the energies of combat, while at the same time it makes the path of duty clear. Still less, Is it at the hour of triumph over our foes? Then there is not temptation to rebel. The real test of our faithfulness to God is in most cases our power to continue steadfastly in one course of conduct when the excitement of conflict is removed and the enemies to which we have to contend are the insidious allurement of ease or custom amid the commonplace duties of life. In other words, what he's saying this, the greatest threat to our faithfulness and our obedience to God is comfort. Comfort, ease, custom, amid the commonplace duties of life. One man said this, he described Christianity as a long obedience in the same direction. That's what it is. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And so Joshua knew that it's easy for the people to promise obedience and devotion to the Lord, but it's quite something else for them to actually do it. And so he presses them. He presses. He doesn't just take what they have to say and go, oh, great, let's move forward. No, he goes, whoa, wait a little bit. Slow your roll a little bit. Pump the brakes. You need to understand what's happening here. He says, listen, it's not that easy. You think that you can just sit there and and make a verbal promise? No, 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 no. It's more than that. And he challenges them to look honestly at their own hearts. He reveals to them something that's already in their hearts that they do not see that cannot remain. It cannot remain if they are to 
to desire to serve the Lord in sincerity and in truth. Verse 21, and the people said to Joshua, no, 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 but no, we'll serve the Lord. And so Joshua said to them, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord yourself for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And he said, now therefore, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Put away the foreign gods that already exist in your lives. This is the second time he's brought it up. Verse 14, he talked about the foreign gods need to be removed. And here again in verse 23, he tells them there are foreign gods in your heart that need to be removed. The sense is that the people had already begun to worship the gods of the peoples that they had just driven out. They had already given their heart to the idols and the worship of other gods. And so he's saying there's already false gods among you. You are already living for other things than the Lord your God. And this morning, can that be said of us? Are there foreign gods in our hearts, in our homes, on our phones? We may say, yeah, we serve the Lord. But in the dark places of our heart, are we actually serving another God? And so he says, put away these foreign gods and incline your heart to the Lord your God. Literally, take Whatever was, was attracting your heart, whatever focus your heart had before, remove that and now focus your heart vertically. Focus your heart completely on the Lord. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve, verse 24, and his voice we will obey. And so Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and ordinances in Shechem. And then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law and he took a large stone And he set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, or literally against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us, and it shall therefore be a witness to you, or literally against you, lest you deny your God. I like that. Joshua brings in this big rock in the middle of this assembly and puts it down and says, guys, listen, this rock has heard what you just said. It's heard everything that you've just spoken. The promise that you just made, your profession of faith that you would serve the Lord, this rock has just heard it. Now, interestingly enough, archaeologists recently excavating the site of Shechem have found and uncovered this great, large limestone pillar that they believe to be the very stone that we're speaking of here, that we're reading about in Joshua chapter 24. Isn't that interesting? Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, that every one of us will have to stand before God and give account of every single word that we have ever spoken. Think about every word that you spoke that you thought no one was listening to. When you're in your truck by yourself, when you're in the back 40, right? when you're in your shop, when you're mowing the lawn, every word that you thought, my kids have never heard me say these words, God heard them. And they were recorded. That's crazy. And it says that every single word that we speak has been recorded, has been heard. The words that we speak, the promises that we make, they mean something. Words mean something. And we will be called by God to give account of everything that we say. And Joshua brings in this big rock, lays it down in front of him and says, this rock will bear witness against you if you go against your promise. 
Wow. I'm going to have the worship team start making their way up. And as we close here this morning, we're going to give an opportunity for us to renew your covenant, your promise, your relationship with the Lord, to recommit, to incline your heart to the Lord, to resolve to be faithful and to follow him and serve him and him alone. So as you're sitting there this morning and as we've listened to this message, and I'm sure many of us are like, yeah, amen, hallelujah. As for me and my house, I'll serve the Lord. But understanding what that means, that you need to relinquish the things that are already in your heart that are hindering you, that are between you and God, and turn your heart, incline your heart completely and fully to the Lord, to recommit yourself to him. To say literally, Lord, this is it. I'm drawing a line in the sand. That's what Joshua was doing. It's almost, remember that time that Jesus drew something in the sand and they found that woman caught in adultery? And Jesus was drawing on the ground and he said, you who was without sin, cast the first stone. He's drawing a line in the sand. Joshua, by the Spirit of God, is drawing a line in the sand and says, listen, choose God today. Or don't choose God today. But as for me and my house, we're on God's side. And we're going to push aside everything that hinders, anything that's going to to inhibit my progress with God, anything that comes between me and the Lord, and I'm choosing to stand for Him. And I'm going to lead my family, even if no one else does, I'll live for God. And if that's you this morning, I want to ask that you stand up right where you're at. Husbands, wives, grandparents, young and old, married, unmarried. If that's you, go ahead and stand right where you're at today. I would encourage you to do so. To make that commitment. Today's the day. As Joshua said to the nation of Israel, he gathered them together, they presented themselves to the Lord, and he rehearsed all the faithfulness of God. He said, because God, this is who God is. Therefore, choose you this day whom you will serve. And today, January 16th, 2022, is a day that all of us have said, that's me. I want to be counted in the number that says, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. I also want to encourage you guys, Because in Joshua 27, it says, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he has spoken to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. These walls, these beams, these chairs, they have heard today. They have seen today. And just real quick, I want you guys to look to your right and to your left. Look around the people who have said, count me in. Honestly, look to the right and to the left. Look around. Make eye contact with someone. Because this is what the, the church is all about. The, the church is all about living for Christ and encouraging each other to do so. It's about holding one another up when we're weak. It's about coming alongside one another and walking life together. It's about 
holding each other accountable. I know we don't like that word, but it's actually a really good word. It's a biblical concept of holding each other accountable. And today, as we've stood up and we've looked around, perhaps you're looking in the back of people's heads, remember that person's back of their head and go to them one day when they're not living for the Lord and go, hey, brother, I remember one day we stood together and we confessed that we were going to live for Christ. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Let's serve the Lord together. Let's encourage one another. Let's exhort one another to live for Jesus. Amen? Amen. Verse 28 says, Joshua says, no doubt with great great emotion, and he sent the people away, everyone to their inheritance. And when we leave this place in just a few moments, we'll sing a song, we'll be a benediction, and we leave this place, we're into the world. And I want to encourage you to hold that promise that profession in your heart. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Wives, encourage your husbands. Husbands, encourage your wives. Sons and daughters, encourage your parents. Parents, encourage your kids. We will serve the Lord. We're going to do it. Even if no one else does, we will. Amen? Father, this morning we come before you. We thank you, Lord, for your work. and We thank you, Lord, for the power of your Holy Spirit and and your word, Lord, that convicts, that challenges, Lord, that inspires. We pray, Lord God, for those of my brothers and sisters who have stood up today and said, I don't want it to be just a mantra. I don't want it to be cliche. I don't want it to be just something that's on my wall or a bumper sticker that I've seen. But Lord, I truly do want to serve you. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Lord, we pray that you would help fathers to take the lead. That you'd help mothers to support and encourage. That you'd help single moms and single dads to do everything they possibly can. That you would equip them and enable them, empower them to lead the way for their kids to know you. And Lord, we pray that even if no one else in our family does, no one else in our sphere of influence does, none of our friends do, Lord, that we could truly stay faithful to that promise. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so today, Lord, help us to incline our hearts. Help us, Lord God, to clean out the idols and the false gods in our lives and help us serve you with sincerity and in truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.